Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. I hope everyone's had a good week. Uh, I'm a little bit off schedule because, you know, the best laid plans of parents tend to go awry when the children and car companies are involved. But we're back, and we're going to dive right into Budget Spotlight. Now, this is the first time in a while we've gotten to do Budget Spotlight the right way. I'm using air quotes that you can't see because I'm in the car, and you're not. But, first time I've been able to do Budget Spotlight properly in a while, which is to say we're doing an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-focused card 
or just like a good value that's good in both 60 and 100 card formats. So our first card on the list, because this is our first look in at standard in a long time, I wanted to highlight some standard cards that are, while they're not gonna be cards that are gonna stick around for the long haul, these are cards that are on the very low end of the price spectrum and as such represent interesting investments for potential eternal play down the line while still being good investments for standard right now if you can play it in paper. So our uncommon is Flourishing Fox and I've talked about this thing before but we're gonna do it again because somehow this thing is still 50 cents even though it's just really good. Uh, for those of you who didn't catch it last time or just are just now tuning in for the first time, Flourishing Fox is a one mana, single white mana for a one one. Whenever you cycle another card, put a plus one plus one counter on this creature and Flourishing Fox itself has cycling for one mana, a generic mana, no less. So this is the best proactive threat we've ever gotten for cycling decks. And I'm not saying that like for standard cycling decks. I mean that period. Hollow One's really good. Flourishing Fox is better. Because Flourishing Fox doesn't depend on you to draw it in multiples along with a bunch of cycling cards to be good. Like... Hollow One really wanted you to draw a bunch of copies of Hollow One in addition to a card like Burning Inquiry or Goblin Lore in order to make it strong. And Flourishing Fox is not about that life. Flourishing Fox just says, I'm going to come down on turn one, and if you're cycling, I'm beaten down, and if you're not cycling, I'm still beaten down. Like, I'm still attacking. Like, I cost you one mana, and then every time you cycle, I get bigger. I'm a grow threat rather than a, like, an Arclight Phoenix-style payoff card. Is the best way I can make the distinction between the two. And Flourishing Fox, I mean, this thing is just so good. The standard cycling deck I've profiled on this show multiple times now, uh, including recently in the Jeskai episode, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the, the cycling deck in standard is still very, very good. You have proactive draws with Flourishing Fox and Dronith Stinger. You've got grindy elements with uh, Improbable Alliance and Ironcrag Powermancer and Valiant Rescuer. And you've got a top of the deck Haymaker and Zenith Flare that can just end the game in a blast. And Flourishing Fox is kind of the glue that holds it all together. It's the thing that your opponent is scared of on turn one that allows all these other cards to function properly. And that's why I love it. And not for nothing, the regular version, the regular uncommon is 50 cents. But even the quote-unquote flex version, the alternate frame promo, the uh, FNM promo packs, is a dollar. So if you want to flex on somebody with Flourishing Fox, it still only costs you a dollar. And if you're like me and have no ego about the printing of your cards, 50 cents gets you into the best cycling threat. Like the best proactive cycling 
payoff threat we've ever gotten. Because it's good by itself, it's also good in multiples because each additional one fuels the first one. I mean, it's just good. Moving on to our rare. We've got Thieves Guild Enforcer. And I know we're all tired of seeing this thing. I know. But for those of you who haven't played Standard for the last year, uh, Thieves Guild Enforcer is a single black mana for a 1-1 creature with flash. When this creature, when Thieves Guild Enforcer or another rogue enters the battlefield under your control, each opponent mills two cards. And then while an opponent has, I believe it's eight or more cards in the graveyard, uh, Thieves Guild Enforcer gets plus two, plus one, and has Death Touch. So, again, I know we're all tired of seeing this thing. I, I understand. A lot of you are forever going to fear the one black mana because you're tired of seeing this thing flash in on your instep and invalidate your two drops and more from then on because of what it enables you to do. I get it, but it's still the enabler for one of the most versatile decks I've ever played. And that is really kind of the key, the key and the reason Rogues is so popular. It's why so many people like myself are drawn to it. It's not because we want to tease out wins with Mill, although that is satisfying sometimes. It's not because we're, we're edgelordy or anything like that, although I'm sure some of the pilots are. From my perspective, it's just because the deck is very, very flexible. I get to play and win a lot of different games with rogues. Like, you can play and win games where you get a threat down early and protect it with your counter magic and your removal, which lets you play sort of like Merfolk and Modern, where you just get a clock down and beat them to death while you keep them from doing anything about it. You've got other games where you can kind of, oh, what's the term here? You can you can kind of not really necessarily adopt the full-on control role, although given the fact that Into the Story allows you to reload effectively, it's certainly possible. But you get to play kind of a bigger stance where you can step back and kind of make the opponent have it, so to speak. It just, it's versatile, it's interesting, it's exciting, and it's, I'm sure, one of the last things you want to see on any kind of a spotlight list because you're tired of seeing it at all. But it's a dollar. It is one dollar. Like, you can build the entire rogues deck for, like, $25 right now. You can get two challenger decks and you pretty much got it covered. I scratched that. It's probably going to be like $30 because you got to get pathways. But you can get the singles dirt cheap. And then you've got a deck that will get you through until October. And it's got a little bit of play in formats like Historic and Pioneer. Like, it's not awful. 
So you can do a lot worse for a dollar. And speaking of things you can do a lot worse than a dollar for, we're gonna move on to our mythic. It's actually a dollar fifty, but semantics. Uh, we've talked about it before. We're just gonna kind of breeze through this one. Vadrock, Apex of Thunder. Like it's it's good. Uh, Jeskai Mana, three three flying first strike trample. When this creature mutates, cast a non-creature spell from your graveyard that costs three or less. Doesn't exile it. Doesn't, like, you don't lose the spell. You don't lose the ability to keep going if that's what you're doing. Even the fair mode on, on it is really good. The reason I'm spotlighting it again is because the price has dipped. This thing was over $3 the last time I, I looked at it, and it's $1.50 now. The price is dropping, but they, like, we got open the omen paths to play with it. So it got better. So even if you just want to pick it up for Commander, you can play it, open the Omen Pass, a bunch of mutate creatures in your commander deck, and then it can also just like rebuy you mana rocks randomly as your commander. Really good. <laughs> it's really good. So, moving on from things I've talked about recently, we're going to talk about one that I haven't talked about since right after it got banned in standard. And that card is Luca Copper Coat Outcast. Uh, Luca is 5 mana, 3 RR, 4 loyalty, or 5 loyalty. It's 5 loyalty, right? I think it's 5 loyalty. And Luca says, uh, plus 1, exile the top 3 cards of your library. You may cast any, cre or any creatures among them gain. You may cast this spell from exile as long as you control a Luca Planeswalker. And then you've got minus, I guess it is, it is five loyalty. Minus two, exile target creature you control. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature with a greater converted mana cost. Put that creature onto the battlefield, put the rest of the cards on the bottom in any order. Or in a random order. And then minus seven, each creature you control deals damage to target player. I believe it is. Less than important when it comes to 60 card formats, and then I can't remember if it's target player or each opponent, but I want to say it's target player. So, Luca is first and foremost a $3 5 mana Mythic Planeswalker that is an engine. $3 is still way too low for such a uniquely disparate enabler. And what do I mean by that? As a curve-topping card advantage engine for creature decks, you can use the plus one ability to great effect, constantly giving yourself more creatures to cast like something like a Vivian Monsters Advocate, where you get to churn through your deck and keep finding creatures and casting them, and putting the chaff on the bottom of your library. It's especially effective with creatures that can be cast alternate ways, like the new incarnations in Modern Horizons 2. Its pedigree as a polymorph needs no introduction, but it's worth pointing out that I still occasionally see this card in Standard and Historic. 
Like, it's not bad in 60-card formats. And it's still a card you can play if you're playing a Polymorph deck in Commander. Because it's not a creature. It's a card you can Narset for. It's a card you can... Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. There's a lot of things you can use that will find it that will also not be creatures. And then you can use it to polymorph into something like a Sarah Avatar or, uh, you know, Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger, uh, Emrakul the Promised End, big dumb creature, you know, Blightsteel Colossus, whatever, right? And then with clever deck building, you can actually profitably utilize both aspects of this card effectively. And we'll get to we'll get to more of that in a minute. But again, Luca, three dollars, it's not bad. Moving on, we are not doing brew of the week this week or next week because we're talking, we're doing kind of a deep dive on formats. So like we're talking about a lot of decks. So we're diving into standard for the first time in a long time as like a dedicated study on what the format's about. We haven't done this in a while, so what does standard actually look like? Well, from my perspective, anecdotally on ladder and like playing unranked when I have 30 minutes to kill, I see a ton of mono red rogues and random stuff built to prey on specific areas of the format and they shift on seemingly daily basis. like. I primarily play best of one because it's the easiest way for me to get a lot of games in. And because of that, I mean, I end up playing against a lot of the decks that are built for best of one. I see a lot of the life gain deck. I see a lot of the, uh, I see a lot of Winota. I see a lot of mono white aggro. I see a lot of mono red I see a lot of gruel I see like decks that are trying to push the envelope I see a lot of the auras deck randomly just kind of wild wacky stuff and there's nothing inherently wrong with that but if I look at metagame trends on uh, MTG goldfish look at MTGO deck dumps arena tournament results and all we have clear players in each major archetype. Mono Red and Gruel continue to serve as a format litmus test. You have to be able to beat these to justify existing as a reactive deck. They test and define what interaction you need to, you need to justify building a deck. Mono White and Winota occasionally serve this role as well but I would put them a step behind the Embercleave decks. Like, you can technically play Embercleave and Winota, but why would you? You get the, the double strike thing that you can just floop into now. Although I guess if you want Trample, you're playing Kenrith. So I was like, you know, you can, you can still do it. But regardless, that occupies the aggressive pillar of the format. There's a very strong, sort of diverse aggressive pillar of the format. It basically comes down to whether or not you want to be an Embercleave deck or like a Seasoned Hallowblade deck. I wouldn't even go that far. I guess. Do you want to be an Embercleave deck or a Mall of the Skyclaves deck? 
or Winota deck. Like you're you're in one of those camps. Moving on, adventure variants serve as most of the mid-range portion of the format, like the 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 winner's metagame, as it were. Playing on the aggro, playing on aggro decks, light interaction suites. Most of them are playing exactly Bonecrusher Giant and or Frostbite, and then like the mono white decks are playing Skyclave Apparition. Uh, the Winota decks also play Skyclave Apparition, or they, if they don't, they should. Uh, sometimes you will run into things like Kabira Takedown or um, Glass Casket Banishing Light out of the white decks, but honestly, pretty rarely. And then you've got like the fight spells. Cards like Decisive Denial, uh, Ram Through... I'm not saying they're cards you're going to run into a ton, but they are cards you will run into periodically. But the aggro decks don't have a ton of interaction in any of their lists, which is kind of the point we're making here. The fact that the aggro decks have a difficult time getting your creatures off the board while their creatures are small enough for you to stomp to death, block aggressively with Lovestruck Beast and make them have a removal spell, make them take the two for one, you just want to leverage card advantage and grind out games. Sultai Ultimatum, Demir Control, Azorius Control, and even Esper Doom Foretold are your representatives of the control pillar. And I'm not saying any of these decks makes up a, a, a significant portion of the metagame. They, they may, I don't know. But I know that I've seen them. I know that I've seen them in events. I don't know that I've seen them in the winner's metagame necessarily, but I have seen them in events. I have seen lists splattered across Twitter, making Mythic or, you know, having an, an, an interesting tournament result or something along those lines. So I'm inclined to believe that these decks are at least playable. Uh, you are represented as a control option, leveraging sweepers, counter magic alongside cards like Behold the Multiverse. And then the wild card, the weird one that's really good or really bad depending on how the rest of them are positioning themselves is the tempo category. Occupied by Rogues and Is It Dragons. These decks serve as foils to the mid-range and control decks. In other words, when the mid-range and control decks show up in force to beat up on aggro, these decks show up to beat up on the mid-range decks. And then you can kind of sideboard, like that's the metagame you want to be in. You want mostly mid-range and control decks when, to play against when you're playing rogues or is it dragons? Because you want to be able to get under the mid-range and control decks but you want to be able to go a little bit over the top of the aggro decks. But you just kind of have to hope that there's not a lot of aggro so you can spend most of your sideboard on your aggro matchup. So moving on, what does that mean? Because you know me, I'm not one to just look at like what everybody's playing and extrapolate wildly incomplete data from that or like data that will not translate to later on 
what that means fundamentally, what does the standard, what are the fundamentals of the standard format right now? Fundamental turn is four. What does that mean? Mono Red, Gruel, and Winota can reliably kill you by turn four if you don't do anything about it. And I don't just mean putting blockers in the way. I mean being able to stop them from killing you. They will just kill you dead on turn four. This means you either need to present something they need to use their early turns to interact with instead of developing their board or you need to be able to slow them down with your own interaction that will combat their early barrage of plays. On the other side of it, if you are building a proactive deck, the best available sweepers are at four mana with Extinction Event and Shatter the Sky, Doomscar getting an honorable mention as a sometimes turn three sweeper, which is massively valuable against the Winota decks because you can kill everything before they kill you on turn four on the play. <sighs> what are the standout cards? Well, Bonecrusher Giant and Lovestruck Beast remain the premier threats, although for different reasons. Bonecrusher Giant, because it is simultaneously one of the best removal spells, and that removal spell curves into a really efficient threat. And then Lovestruck Beast is just the second most efficient creature I've ever played. It's just so good. Eldraine is still very much a, a pox on the metagame, if you will. Stomp, Blood Chief's Thirst, Heartless Act, Frostbite, Glass Casket, and Binding of the Old Gods represent the best popular spot removal. Something to keep in mind. A really good example of a deck that kind of knows what it's about is the Sultai Ultimatum deck wherein you are looking to mana ramp on turn two, you want a wolf, wolf willow haven on turn two, binding of the old gods your thing away on turn three, go get a land on turn four, extinction event your board away on turn four, start to run away with the game on turn five. Like it's a deck that knows what it's about and I can respect that even if I don't like it. If only because I don't have the wild cards to build it and play it myself. But like understanding what the best removal is 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 a twofold advantage because it gives you the ability to play against aggro, like you know kind of how you need your deck configured against aggro because you know what the best available options are. But it also goes deeper than that because if you're on the other side of it, you know what turn it is, you know how much mana they left open, you have an idea of what they're representing or what they're likely to do. You know, if you're playing against Ultimatum, did they let your four drop creature resolve? That's only gonna get value if it gets to attack? Well, they probably have binding and you shouldn't have played it. <laughs> you know uh, in addition the next category of card I want to talk about are the engine cards and there's going to be a whole episode about decks like the ones these cards power later we're going to get around to that 
but engine cards are cards that you really want to keep on the battlefield for a few turns. Cards like Edgewall Innkeeper, Improbable Alliance, Lurus of the Dream Den, Ruin Crab, Teferi's Tutelage, Witherbloom, Apprentice, and Sedgemore Witch are valuable engine cards with an honorable mention to Extus, depending on like which half you cast. These are cards that you really like, you can get value out of them just by playing them and triggering them once and you're not unhappy about it. But the more you get to untap with them, the stronger they become. The stronger your position becomes. By contrast, instead of engine cards, cards you need to untap with multiple times, you have the haymakers that slam the door shut seemingly on their own. Yorian, Embercleave, basically every ultimatum. Into the Story, Dream Trawler, Goldspan Dragon, Allrun's Epiphany, Shark Typhoon. These are cards that just, mm, game over. This thing's down. This game's about to end one way or another. They're the finishers, they're the win conditions, they're the cards you have to take into account if you're gonna try to finesse these decks that are playing them. Like, I can't tell you how many really well-laid boards I've had destroyed by Embercleave. Just an unfortunate number of, of turns were completely undone by the opponent having the Embercleave. You should just assume they always do when it, when it looks like they might assume they do and play that way. But I digress. Sometimes you can't play around it and things happen, like you dying. But last but not least, the disruption. Uh, Croxa and Agonizing Remorse serve as the hand disruption, although there'd be a potential honorable mention to cards like Elspeth's Nightmare or uh, Humiliate if it ever gains any traction. For the ability to disrupt the hand, uh, Valky at one point, Valky slash Tibble, was another piece of disruption, but it's kind of hit and miss. It's up and down as to whether or not it's actually seeing a lot of play. But for counter magic, kind of the premier of the format right now are. Drown in the Lock, Saw It Coming, Mystical Dispute, and Disdainful Stroke. Don't underestimate the stroke because you will get got by it at the least opportune moment if you do. But that wraps up kind of what specifically that means for the format. You know, these are the cards that you have to account for. With all that in mind, based on what the format looks like, you know, what cards you've got to take into account. What am I playing? I like leveraging engine cards. It's a problem of mine. I'd say I'm working on it, but I'm really not right now. <laughs> I want to leverage engine cards, ideally in multiples. Luca Adventures leverages Edgewall Innkeeper as a main engine card with Luca serving as both a potential haymaker, which is to say you just slam it on five, exile a three drop, 
floop a, a coma onto the battlefield and run away and hide with the game if the opponent doesn't have the out. Or you can just Luka into plus one, hit Bone Crusher, plus one again, hit Brazen Borrower. Uh, we've got Love Struck Bone Crusher, play Brazen Borrower minus seven, kill you. Right? Like, you build up to inevitability either way. You either flop a giant creature into play, or you threaten to keep drawing creatures and just bury your opponent that way. It's really kind of up to you. Uh, the, the goal of the deck is to approach games where you want to wear the opponent down with two-for-one card exchanges and then slam the door shut with Luka into coma or just hard-casting your coma. And nothing wrong with it. The adventure cards offer a lot of flexibility, the archetype, as they have the entire time they've been in standard. They're just obnoxiously good, and I like playing with them. Uh, Jeskai Cycling leverages a whopping four engine cards with Flourishing Fox, Improbable Alliance, Valiant, Rescu Valiant Rescuer, and Ironcrag Pyromancer, along with Zenith Flare as a Haymaker. Cards like Drawn and Stinger and uh, Ironcrag Pyromancer also serve to add reach to the deck, giving you the ability to win the game without having to attack, which is valuable. You know, you can, in a, in a game where you're having to waste... You know, you're, you're wasting your Flourishing Fox blocking. You have to block to stay alive. You are forced to trade your Flourishing Foxes into their your opponent's creatures. You are forced to make trades with things like Valiant Rescue where you're not. You're, you're staying on the back foot. You can wear them down without having to attack them thanks to, you know, Stinger, Pyromancer pings them for three every now and then. And then all of a sudden they're at ten and you top deck the Zenith Flare and kill them. And you win that game when you never really were ahead. I love, love, love the Jeskai Cycling deck. I'm just going to be very forthcoming about that. I love the Jeskai Cycling deck because of its sort of multiplicity. It used to be really, really, really linear, but it's become so much fun to play. I love it. And then last but not least, the last deck I'm playing in Standard right now is, of course, we talked about it earlier, I still play Rogues. I don't play it often, but when I do, I still enjoy it. They serve as a deck to play when things become too reactive, able to generate different kinds of pressure. Like, Ruin Crab is an interesting card to just stick on the battlefield and make the Sultai Ultimatum player deal with it. Because I have had multiple games against that deck come down to whether or not the opponent actually has a win condition left in their deck to ultimatum into. That's a thing that has happened. Is my opponent running out of ways to kill me? Like, it's... 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 It, feels cheesy it feels dirty and the average magic player is going to hate it but it's going to get you some w's that you probably don't deserve and i can respect that 
noteworthy addition to my list is bringing back the Vantress Gargoyle as early game beef. Uh, it's a two mana 5-4. I mean, come on. Uh, for those of you who don't know, two mana 5-4 flying can only attack if an opponent has seven or more cards in the graveyard, can only block if you have four or more cards in your hand. Uh, and you can tap it to make each player mill a card. Most importantly, it's a it's early game beef that is difficult for Mono Red to kill. Like, they have to go... If they want to kill it advantageously and not lose their creature, they have to, like, put damage on with, uh... What's the word? What's, what's the creature's name? Put damage on with Fervent Champion, have the mana up, Frostbite, before Gargoyle gets to deal damage back. Right? Like, they're not dealing four damage with one card in Mono Red, reliably. They might get you with an Ember Cleave here and there, but at the point in time where they're making Ember Cleave plays, you, you got some things you can do too. So, I like having the Vantress Gargoyle back in the deck. If I take it into an Eternal format, I'm less high on it, but it's, it's pretty good in the standard version. And last but not least, do I have any pet decks? The Infinite Mutate deck that I talked about in the last episode is not good. I mean, I'm going to be perfectly blunt about that. The deck is not very good. But it is a lot of fun. Uh, in particular, I play the Landfall version. Because uh, it's just an absolute blast. Some games you just cheese people out. You're like, Akum Hellhound, Brushfire Elemental, uh, Land Drop, Migratory Great Horn, attack you for a billion. Next turn, mutate, get a land, play Fable Passage, sack Fable Passage, attack you for a billion again. Like, it's fun. It is not good, but it is so much fun. And then uh, I have started down the rabbit hole of the Magecraft decks. I finally started playing around with Strixhaven. Uh, my favorite of them so far is the Rakdos, technically Mardu Sacrifice deck. Uh, you're Rakdos except you're splashing for Extus. Uh, in particular, like Sedgemore Witch plus Plum the Forbidden is just thoroughly disgusting. Especially when you're playing Claim the Firstborn too. Like, just give me your thing, attack you with it, sacrifice it and all these uh, pest tokens, make a bunch more pest tokens, draw a bunch of cards. Like, it's also a really good card to have on hand against something like Extinction Event or uh, Shatter the Sky or Doomscar or any of the board wipes because you just sacrifice your board in response and draw a bunch of cards claim the firstborn plus village rights is still really good 
but I've also started playing around with the clever Luva, clever Lumamancer and Leon and Lightscribe decks as well, although to admittedly much less fanfare and excitement. Uh, I enjoy them, but I don't know how good they are. I'll put it that way. But regardless, I finally started playing around with the, the Strixhaven stuff, where before I was largely playing not Strixhaven stuff. Um, but yeah, I do find it deeply ironic as an overview that, you know, we've spent the last several months complaining about Eldraine, and I would argue that my best standard deck is an Ikoria one in cycling. I know Pyromancer and Improbable Alliance came from Eldraine. I know this because I played them before they were good. Not trying to hipster anybody. Anybody who played against me in the very first Easy Game Media Discord Open knows I will play bad cards just to try to make them work. But yeah, like, it's, it's fine. You know, there's the Mutate deck, there's the the Cycling deck, like, Luka is one of the key cards I'm playing. Uh, I mean, there's just, I'm, I'm not doing, the only Eldraine thing I'm really doing is Adventures. Which I guess is technically true of the entire standard format. You're either playing Adventures or Embercleave. Or you're playing a new deck. But, I digress. So that's all I got for Standard this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to be back next week with kind of a, a combo episode. We're going to be looking at the Eternal formats that I play. I have to put that disclaimer in there because I'm going to be making some fairly wild sweeping generalizations about them. But I don't play Legacy. I don't play Vintage. Uh, I don't play CDH. So when I'm talking about Eternal Formats in the next episode, I am primarily talking about Pioneer, Modern, and Historic. So bear that in mind. But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back on Sunday. We'll get uploaded on Sunday this week. I promise. Because I have Monday off. I'm going to make it happen. But we'll be back. You got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. Join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. You wanna you wanna get a more direct hand in the show? Become a patron, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Join the Patron Pathfinders Discord. Uh and there may or may not be a big announcement coming up regarding something I want to do a little bit more locally. Uh, I may make a video and talk about that uh, later on this week. But for now, that's all we've got. So, you know, with that in mind, I leave you. Laugh hard. Play standard. It's not that bad. Be kind. And we'll catch you next week.